We turn now to the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 18. And we want to consider the last section of Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. I'm going to read also a counterpart or a complementary passage in Luke 17, in verses 3 and 4. Also, but first of all, let's read Matthew 18. This will be my text, this entire section here, which begins with the question... And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he'd called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Thus far we read Matthew 18. Just to glance with you for a minute, we'll be referring to this. Luke 17 and verses 3 and 4. Take heed to yourselves, Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And interestingly, after that, and perhaps immediately after that, the apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. A sermon begins with a question, and the question is a question of befuddlement and consternation, perhaps. Seriously? Seriously? The disciples recall 
Having been Jesus' disciples for some years now in Jesus' public ministry, having learned from Jesus the things of the kingdom of heaven, ask a question. Master, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And to that I say, seriously? And it's as if Jesus himself says, seriously? This is all that you've come to? This is all you've learned from me about what it is to be a disciple? You're asking now, who's the greatest? Who shall be the greatest? And they're thinking to their shame, thus according to merit, and to thinking that the discipleship of Jesus and the good pleasure of Jesus is to found in a kind of merit that they earn with him. And so they ask the question, very ambitious, very proud, who's the greatest? Who is the greatest? And Jesus turns it all around, and this is what we've been seeing in Matthew 18. Sets a little child in the midst and says, except you be converted and come like a little child, you'll by no means enter the kingdom Whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom, and so on. He's speaking in an altogether different vein. He's saying it's not about merit, it's about grace, because little children, well, what do they merit? What do they give to the cause of a family? What do they contribute in the middle of the night except to cry? And Jesus, you see, is, is leveling everyone in his discipleship and saying, it's not about which of you is the greatest, but it's about my great grace. It's about the freeness of this salvation that I've been teaching you. It's about, in fact, the greatness of Jesus. This is what we've seen. Jesus is teaching and basing his teaching on his own greatness and not the greatness of individuals, great discipleship even of individuals, as he teaches that we have to beware lest we sin against little ones and defend them. We have to be as Jesus and God the Father in Jesus, who as the good shepherd leaves the 99 and, and goes after the one who as is a little child is precious in the sight of God and not because of the worth of that little sheep, but because of the worth of God's honor. Seriously? Seriously? And we come to this point in our consideration of Matthew 18, and as we end this today, and we want to ask ourselves the question, seriously? Perhaps none of you have asked that question, seriously? Have you been a follower of Jesus or at least someone who's professed this or someone who's been baptized in the name of Jesus and you're still not getting the things of heaven, the things of grace and God come down instead of you climbing a ladder up to heaven to earn something with him? Seriously? Are we that far from sanctification or even understanding Anything about salvation that we still ask these questions and wonder how we can get ahead with God on our own 
and even on the shoulders or trouncing upon others to get there. And we've seen in the last sermon, and we shall see today, that it's especially when we consider great sins or real sins in the church, which can become, which are great and which can become, can become greater if we let them, we've been considering that it's important for us not to ask who is the greatest among us, but who is, on behalf of God, the great God in Jesus, who would deal with sin seriously because of God's honor and not our own. And so we've considered last time that well-known passage, but little-used passage in Matthew 18 of when a brother sins against you and how the process of reconciliation should go on. And Jesus is speaking here to serious disciples who would take sin seriously and, and not let a moment go without this reconciliation process being in process and, and so that we can affect a communion or a reunification of sinners in the body of Christ, which exalts the greatness of Christ himself, the great peacemaker. But here, perhaps the hardest, in connection with the reconciliation process that we would have going on in the church and in our own personal lives with people who sin against us, we have to deal with forgiveness. Maybe perhaps the hardest thing in which it is that we show that we take Jesus seriously, his salvation of us seriously, and his call of us seriously, and don't take ourselves as seriously as we want to. So let's consider who the greatest, that question, once again, in this third part series of Matthew 18, and then we consider that it's the forgivers. The forgivers are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we want to just consider three things that these forgivers forgive as God. Amazing thing. Secondly, we consider that they, can, they forgive because of God. Can't forgive unless God's behind your forgiving. And then finally, they, can, they, they forgive to those forgivers for God, that he might be honored, the church might be blessed, and, and people come by us and they say, wow, they preach forgiveness and they actually forgive. That's an amazing thing. Theirs is an amazing God. In an answer to Peter's question, <clears throat> who's obviously reflecting upon this instruction they've just received about reconciliation, People sinning against you, you go to them, you take witnesses, you tell the church, and there's an outcome, hopefully, that's, that's wonderful in the earth, there's reconciliation. But Peter at that time says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Is it up to seven times? Now, we're not sure of the motive of brash Peter here, but there could be something of pride in this, and he's priding himself on the fact that he's going over and above the Jewish way of looking at things, and their way of looking at things apparently was the custom of the day was to forgive 
maybe twice, maybe three times at the most four. Peter, he's going after the divine covenant number and saying, should we forgive seven times? Maybe he's hoping for an accolade from his master Jesus. And good, Peter, you got it right, seven times. And then Jesus, well, he answers with this, no, <laughs> no. Not up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And there you see he's taking it out of the numbers game and writing things on the wall and marking things down and putting this into the realm of grace. More on that presently. So that's the first thing. But then Jesus launches into this amazing parable and he gives an answer really to Peter's question in this parable and in the clear statement at the end of it in verse 35 about the Heavenly Father forgiving each of us who forgives in his heart and the other brother, but not forgiving those who don't forgive brothers their trespasses. So let's just consider and reconsider the parable, first of all. There's the numbers thing. Well, no, the parable. Let's just explain that, and then we'll go back and and try to get at what Jesus is saying here about the kind of forgiveness we ought to give. There's this parable. First of all, Jesus has said it's 490 times that's forgiveness, but here's what it's like. It's not only a a continual thing and an often repeated thing, forgiving, but it's like this, and the kingdom of heaven and therefore subjects in it are to be like the people that he's talking about here, at least the ones who are, who are good in, in the parable. Well, first of all, there's a king in this kingdom, and he represents God, obviously, who settles accounts with his servants, and he wants to. And these servants must have been pretty high up officials because this one, one he finds owing him, owes him 10,000 talents. And... <clears throat> There's no way that an ordinary person in that kingdom around there would have 10,000 talents and nevertheless owe 10,000 talents and must have gotten this because maybe he was a governor of this king and represented him and collected taxes for him and was supposed to pay the king at certain times these taxes that he got, or at least a large percentage of them. He could maybe say, take something off the top as was his salary. But there's this one, and he's not able to pay, and his master then strictly commands him to be thrown into prison. And his wife as well, and children, all that he had, and and that payment be made. He'd be sold, I should say, into slavery more accurately, but also his family. At that time, the servant fell down and begged him, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all. And then apparently for no reason other than his own good heart, the king has compassion on him and forgives him, releases the debt from him and releases him so he doesn't have to pay. Doesn't, and doesn't have to pay and he couldn't have paid anyway. I want to tell you the greatness of this debt is, is phenomenal. There's this 10,000 talents that he owes. Let's just think about that. We're told that in the Attic Greek culture, 
10,000 was the highest number. 10,000. It was like our zillions. Sometimes you say zillions or gabillions or something like that, or a Google, one with a hundred zeros. Well, 10,000 at that day was the highest of the numbers. Talents was the highest of the measure. And it's hard to equate exactly what he would have paid or had owed in today's terms. But one has figured out that it would have taken 60 million days for someone to pay this off, days' wages, because we're told that one talent was equivalent to 6,000 days of an ordinary laborer's wages. And so they do the math, and there would be 60 million days that it would have been required for a workman to pay off the debt. And it also, that equates to 200,000 years for someone to pay off the debt. Obviously impossible. Though there's an exaggeration, as it were, in this uh, parable to show the impossibility of paying off the debt, but also the magnanimity, the graciousness of the heart of the king to forgive him such a debt. Surely, in all the Roman Empire at that time would not have been uh, found such wealth as 10,000 talents, but this man forgives him all. Well, now, that servant who's forgiven everything, can you imagine how happy he would have been? Imagine that. Start over, clean slate, no debts. Well, here's what that servant did, and, and the, you get the impression from the text that he goes out and it's immediately, he, he's right away, he goes out and he finds one of his fellow servants. He, this official had his own lackeys who served him. And this one owed him 100 denarii pittance compared to 10,000 talents. And this one lays his hands on him, like grabs him by the throat and takes him and says, pay me what you owe. And then that fellow servant falls down at his feet and begs him, saying, have patience with me, I'll pay you all. It's exactly the echo of what this other servant had said to his master, the king. Just about the same words. But this servant who was forgiven would not. He would not let him go. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Then his fellow servants, they weren't happy with this. They saw what had been done. They were very grieved. They came and told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have had compassion? You know the story. He's then delivered to the torturers, to the people in prison who would torture him maybe to get a confession out of him as to where his offshore accounts were so that they could get some money from this guy, squeeze water out of a turnip. But torture, it would be for him until he should pay all that was due him, which was never. It's a life sentence, a triple life sentence, a thousand life sentences. He'd never get out. And then the lesson Jesus says, and this leads us to what we're going to say about this, so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. 
Jesus is impressing upon us all here the importance of forgiveness, obviously. By Jesus giving a certain number, instead of Peter's seven, he gives 490. And then by this very thinly veiled parable and the lesson at the end, the Father forgives, and therefore you must forgive those who sin against you. Well, let's some lessons here. For certainly, our forgiveness must reflect something of the image of God and that we represent Him. The first thing I'd say to you is that we must forgive. We must forgive those who sin against us. There's no option here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer even says this, He highlights this, we are to forgive, we are to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. And right at the end of that prayer, Jesus reminds us that this is an import, such an important point that it is absolutely essential that you forgive. If you do not, you will not be forgiven, just as Jesus says here. Forgiveness is such an important thing for us Christians. And the reason is because then we show that there's a God who forgives There's a God who forgives. If you're a Christian, you must show that you understand forgiveness by forgiving one another. So very, very important. And this from the heart. So we show the heart of God. My heavenly Father, Jesus threatens, also will do to you, that is, deliver you to the torturers, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother, his trespass. Trespass says, that is, even if the brother sins against you seven times or 70 times seven. And what's Jesus getting at here with that number? Back to that number before we get more into the fact of the the parable, the divine forgiveness presented there. Well, Jesus is saying it's not about numbers. That's really what he's saying. He's not even saying, of course, that it's not seven, but I have a higher number. Seventy times seven, what is that, homeschoolers? 490. 490. So, is Jesus saying that? And so when it comes to 491, you're off the hook, you don't have to forgive. No, he's not saying that clearly. He's saying that there is this forgiveness that must be practiced by us as often as the brother sins against you, repents repents for his sin, and begs for forgiveness. That's what he's saying here. It could be, in fact, that Jesus is alluding to something that's the very opposite to another fellow, who was a very unforgiving fellow. His name is Lamech. Lamech was one of the sons of Ham, of the reprobate line in Genesis 4. He's the one who had multiple wives and who boasted in his murder. And then Lamech, in his song, in Genesis 4, says, to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I've killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, seven times, then Lamech, 77-fold. Now, there you have in the Bible an example of reprobate vengeance. 
where Lamech, this ungodly man, this seed of the serpent, is wreaking havoc in the, wor- in the world and in his own family by being unforgiving. He's an example of what sinners are who are unforgiven. He's unforgiving. And behind that is hatred, and behind that is, who's the greatest mirror, mirror on the wall? Who's the greatest of them all? Who's the greatest? The man who's on top. The man who has power. The man who has a big right arm and a couple of guns to go with it. The man who has an entourage of a harem of anyone who is attracted to that kind of a person and the man who is all about power and all about being at the top. Jesus here, perhaps, and certainly this is biblical, is highlighting the exact opposite of vengeance. Seventy times seven, I will wreak havoc in the world and cause my cause to be advanced and I will take judgment into my own hands and vengeance upon anyone who crosses my path. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's about mercy. That's what's behind this. It's about the exact opposite of vengeance, showing mercy. The exact opposite of taking things into your own hand, proclaiming you're the judge, You show mercy to sinners, the kind of mercy that God shows. This is what Jesus would show. You see, Jesus is not here teaching a math lesson. He's teaching a grace lesson. Grace is next to mercy, and mercy is right there next to grace in the things of the gospel. Grace, God's unmerited favor to sinners, mercy is to those same sinners who aren't worthy of it and they're helpless, they're in this bottomless pit of debt. That's what this is about. Jesus is saying, disciples, instead of you bickering about who's the greatest and you're really being evolutionary here, giving proof to Darwin's theory that it's survival of the fittest, even in the kingdom of heaven. Instead of that, think of mercy and God come down and think of me. I'm the evidence of the mercy of God and the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and I love sinners. And I'm all about forgiving them. So, if we would bear the divine image and show it practically, we would forgive. We would forgive as often as a sinner comes to us and asks for forgiveness, and we would show mercy and mercy and mercy. And this means, of course, that there's this freeness about our forgiving. This is what we learn as the parable goes on, too. To speak of the Father or excuse me, the king who is representing the heavenly father, not in all things, but in this main thing. You think of what motivated the king, what motivates God's, God to, to forgive us. Well, it's this, simply something in himself. This is our God. He needs no external motivation to be moved to forgive, and really he could find none, you, you understand, There's nothing that would motivate him outside of himself to 
to reward us maybe for uh, good behavior, but mercy, he says it all. In his own plan, he, show, he would show mercy to the ones who don't deserve it and grace to the ones who don't deserve it. And saving help called forgiveness to the ones who don't deserve it. And Jesus is teaching here as well that we ought to take seriously God before we take over seriously every offense against us. Oh, how dare you do that? How dare you do that to me? How dare you inconvenience me? How dare you whatever to me? And we're not taking seriously offenses to God. See, this is me-centeredness versus God-centeredness. The servant owed God 10,000 talents. And that's really not an exaggeration of the, the fact of what we owe God. You know how much you owe God? I don't either. But it's more than 10,000 talents, even. It's more than 200,000 years in the salt mines of hell. It's forever. Ours is a forever debt. And it's exactly because God is so holy. And this is the reformed center pin, you know, the center doctrine of the doctrines of grace and of mercy is the doctrine of the holiness of God whom we've offended. And the whole idea of the atonement, the whole truth, the whole doctrine of the atonement from the Bible is based on the fact that God's anger must be appeased and that's by the Son. It won't be by you. And all the talents of our sin and all of the weight of it was pressed upon Him. We owe him so much, and we cannot pay. Cannot. Impossible. But Jesus does. So this is here, of course, compared to what people owe us. This is amazingly much greater. So be king-centered is what Jesus is teaching here. Be God-centered in all of this. And do this... Frequently, do this, do, do this often. And there's many other things that could be said about forgiveness here, but we do this really. And what I'm saying here is that this is a real forgiveness that we are to give. And this may be a stumbling block for some, at least in our minds here. I hope not actually. Don't stumble over this gospel. But when Jesus says, forgive, even as you're forgiven, he's teaching that here. He's teaching that you are to communicate a divine forgiveness. Now, here's where we have to make a qualification. No one forgives sins except God. Remember when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic who was led down from the roof, and he forgave his sin, and people were, they wanted to, they, they wanted to, to stone him because he forgave sins, making himself evil with God. Blasphemy, they said. Well, they got that right. Jesus was claiming he was equal with God, but he wasn't blaspheming because he is God in the flesh and God in the person of the Son. But now, that 
leads to the question, how can ours be as Jesus? How can our forgiving of one another be as Jesus? Well, I would say this, beloved, what we're doing when we forgive is we're letting people off the hook. We're letting vengeance be in the hand of God. We're pronouncing them not guilty on behalf of the God we represent. That's the idea of forgiveness. And it's the same thing when the church uh, receives a brother or a sister, they pronounce that they are welcome or welcome back into the church. They're not themselves uh, causing this reconciliation to pass, but they are on the behalf of God, recognizing what God himself has done and is doing. That's what we do. We're agents of God on this earth, in the church, among the brethren. We can do that, and we must. Jesus says we must be those agents of God. And there must, of course, be reconciliation, as, um, as is clear from the context here. There must be this coming together, and there must be this expression of confession of sin and repentance. But then there is forgiveness pronounced when that occurs. This is so important, and this is what distinguishes the church of Jesus Christ from all other institutions and believers, from all unbelievers. This is the singular way we show that we ourselves are forgiven. And this is what I want to express now in the second point here. We forgive as God, and we forgive because of God. This has to be. And I mean by that, we can only forgive if we know God's forgiveness of us. Forgiving is for the forgiven. You find in the world lots of people who say, I forgive the debt, or I'll do this, or courts that show mercy, but that's not real forgiveness, not divine forgiveness. That's a uh, doing slight to justice, perhaps, and it's certainly not expressing on the behalf of God that these debtors or these sinners, these criminals are forgiven when they let them off the hook and out of prison or when they don't give the death penalty for the murderers. Ours is, however, ours is the divine forgiveness. And here's the reason why. Because we are forgiven, and this is everything, Seriously. Do you know that? I think a lot of us can harbor grudges against people for years and years and never forgive and never let people go, let our memories go into the realm of forgiveness simply because we're bitter and we're angry. Or we don't seek forgiveness because maybe we think it's impossible that we're going to be forgiven once again, that the mercy of God would extend to us once again, even through someone we've sinned against. It's very hard. And the only way it's possible is because there is forgiveness with God. And I'm saying here, not just what a lot of evangelicals are saying today, that there's forgiveness to all who believe. Now, that's true. 
But there's something prior to that that magnifies even this reality of forgiveness. There is forgiveness in the mind of God before we ever had forgiveness in mind. And I'm referring to the eternal decree of God. I'm not speaking here simply about this thing about which people are arguing, eternal justification or or so on. But I am speaking of the decree of God, which is real. And in that decree, what did God decree? What did he eternally will from all the foundation of the world? Well, that there would be a people. And that people would be chosen in his son who would become the mediator. It's a reality, you say. You you have to see this to, to agree with the immensity of the love of God. He had a purpose that out of all of the sinful people, he would, in the greatness and largesse of his own heart, say, I love you, I choose you, I'm going to show mercy to you whenever you're born. And so, this is what God was showing and preparing to show in Jesus ever since he created the world for Jesus and by Jesus, and that in all things he might have the preeminence, that he might be the greatest... Seriously. And then in the psalmist, he would work in them by the inspiring spirit, the truth that there is forgiveness with God that he might be feared. Psalm 130 in verse 3 and 4. There would be this knowledge of the God who promises forgiveness, not just through bulls and the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood of the Lamb. And they knew it so they could say, Blessed is the man whose sins are covered, whose transgressions are forgiveness or forgiven, even before the great Jesus came. There's this reality of God in his plan and in his promise that cannot and may not be denied. We're saying that maybe these forgiveness things are an afterthought of God. A plan B, a band-aid, something. But no, it wasn't. It's always been. And then on the cross, there's forgiveness in the blood. This is even before we born, we're born, beloved, before we believe there is forgiveness on the cross. And that's why everyone for whom Jesus died will be forgiven because there's forgiveness on the cross. But then, of course, justification is by faith. There's the application of this treasure chest of the royal jewels of God, the forgiveness of God, when the Father and the Son send forth the Spirit and give you faith and give you a new life. And what they're saying are the Father and the Son in the Spirit, in His giving new life and His giving faith is, I forgive your sins. Now personally. And now what I'm saying is, this reality of forgiveness, this decree of God, this promise of God, this atonement of God and this now appropriated by faith, forgiveness of God is is real. And a reality that takes over all our grudges and all of our personal foibles and everything else. And is a power 
in our life to forgive. Do you have that power? Seriously. Or is, about, is the question in your life always, oh, who's the greatest? Me or the boss, me or that other guy who doesn't deserve the raise and he got it and I didn't. What's it about? Your rights before your wife or your husband, for your children, for your, your parents, claiming your rights, arguing and quibbling in the church? Or do you know the forgiveness of God? You know, I think sometimes we say it's, forgiveness is like a, just like a duty. But it's more than that. It's something we wear. Some have said, well, I'll ask you a question, children. What happens when you dive into the water? You get wet. You know what happens when you're forgiven? You're wet with every drop of the blood of Jesus. And you, you drip forgiveness. You see, it's, forgiveness is not about the fact that we're called to, live, uh, to forgive at this time and that. It's simply because of the fact that we are these forgiven people who wear forgiveness as we wear clothes and who are wet with forgiveness as we are when we jump into the lake. We're submersed in this. This thing called the cross, this thing called the resurrection, this thing called the power of God unleashed on high, forgiving sinners like you, and then making you an agent of his own forgiveness in this world among sinners. It's amazing. So that you take seriously sin, you seek reconciliation, but you don't take so seriously all your standards for forgiving people. They've got to do this and this and this before you forgive them. For that, that point about forgiveness and the power of forgiveness, remind you of that passage we read in Luke. Luke's inspired version is that Jesus says there, and he did definitely, if someone sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now that's an interesting statement with regard to what forgiveness looks like. Say there was, for example, someone in your life, maybe a child, maybe a son, daughter, maybe a husband and a wife, and they sin against you. Eight o'clock in the morning, Nine o'clock, they sin against you. Ten o'clock, and all throughout the day, seven times, and certainly Jesus isn't just doing the numbers thing here. He means 70 times seven, even if in a day. But what he's pointing to, I believe, is that we are to take seriously the persons coming to us, begging for forgiveness. Yes, we take seriously if his confession is is sincere or not, but you see, this is all in a day. And we can't say, no, you come back next week and you prove to me during the week that you are repentant. Jesus doesn't say that. 
What he's saying is we shouldn't take short accounts of others who sin against us and not be suspecting all the time the sincerity of their confession. Now, this is Jesus speaking here. We take so seriously our calling to forgive and the need to show mercy and largeness of heart because someone might just sin again and again with regard to this thing or this attitude they have, and we have to forgive them. But you see, it's just like God. How often do we pray for forgiveness? And yet, how little do we prove to God that we are worthy to be forgiven? You know how often we pray for forgiveness, don't you? As often as you pray, give us this day our daily bread. And you pray, forgive me my debts. I hope you pray that every day. It's the Lord's Prayer. It's a pattern for our praying, and not just once a day, but Surely we sin against God seven times 70 a day and then some and we pray and we pray and we pray. But my point is this. The divine forgiveness does not wait upon our proving that we are worthy to be forgiven or that our repentance is so sincere, now I can be satisfied with that. No, God is so large of heart, He comes out to meet us and He comes out to meet us as the prodigal son, the prodigal daughter, And he says, I love you. We're going to celebrate that you've come back and I'm going out to meet you and kill the fatted calf. And grace takes over. Grace takes over. And this is the great blessing in the church. When there's a people that's forgiven that really forgives every single one who sins against you, every single one who comes begging for mercy, who blows it, who messes up, that, I say, is the kingdom of heaven on earth. When we do this in marriages, men and women, it's a great place. For those who are seeking to be married, forgiveness is the greatest thing. It's a great, great Say it often, forgive me. Say it more often, I love you. That's what forgiveness is all about. Amen. Father, we thank you for forgiving us. We pray to forgive others so hard. We pray, Father, to know it's all about you and your mercy that we would show It's all about our recovering a sense of just how great you loved us when you sent your Son. And how much you love us who sin against grace and are ungrateful and unforgiving. Bless this church with the knowledge of you. Bless, we pray, that we may know once again the greatness of the power of those who are forgiven in their lives for the justifying declaration of God works in us sanctification, holiness, and the transformation of sinners into the children of God, forgiven to forgive. 
Thanks for your word. We live by it. In Jesus' name, amen.